Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today we are talking to a woman, Nadia Dobrianska, who is hiding out with her family in a house in a rural part of Ukraine. My room is dark because the windows are glued with sticky tape on the inside. So if there is an explosion, if there is a bomb or a rocket landing into the house, that the splinters from the class don't kill us because they're ones inflicting most deadly uh, wounds to people unless they're buried under wrecks and on the outside it's covered with very thick cloth just also to give additional protection from potential bombing and my mother tied up the cloth on the outside so there is more light just a wee bit of light so you can see me but before that, just to quickly mention that we're going to be sending out details over the weekend of our special event for International Women's Day on the 8th of March, this Tuesday at 7pm. And we're also using this event as a way to relaunch or refresh the podcast. We're going to have a brand new logo and we're really excited to reveal that. We're planning a storytelling evening for Women's Day on the theme of change. So with the change, we're going to have guests who are going to tell us their own stories of transformation. And we'd love you to get involved, too. So if you have a short story or anecdote about a massive change or a small change in your life, it could be about health or relationships or work or anything at all, really. It can be funny or moving or surprising. Just email us your story of change to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And we're going to feature one of you and one of your stories during the storytelling evening on Tuesday. So the email to send us your story of change is the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And hopefully we'll see lots of you on Zoom on Tuesday online to celebrate our relaunch. And the event will also be streamed on Facebook if you don't manage to nab a ticket. Now, today we are going to be talking about the war and the invasion in Ukraine because to be honest, with all the stories we're hearing from there, it feels like the only thing we should be talking about. A few days ago, our Europe correspondent did a brilliant interview which alerted us to the presence of a young woman who was then in Kiev who speaks Irish. And I'm just going to read a bit of Naomi's article now. The pound of the Bowron gathered pace with the strumming bazooki as the young woman's voice called out the chorus of an old Ulster song about work and courtship. Dulamon Nabinabui, Dulamon Gaelic, she sang. Seaweed from the Yellow Cliff, Irish seaweed. This was a scene not in Doolan or Dingle, but at O'Brien's pub in downtown Kiev, Ukraine this weekend, where a regular trad session gathers on Sunday afternoons. The singer was Nadia Dobrianska, a native of the Ukrainian capital who speaks fluent Irish, thanks to a spell taking Irish studies at Queen's University, Belfast. 
So with the world's attention now turned to the embattled Ukraine, Dobryanska has been on Radio Nagelukta, Turishk and Nuikt Tijikahar explaining the situation on the ground Oskoelga. And she told Naomi um, that she wasn't even sure she was fluent enough to speak to the radio. But then when she was invited, it turned out she was. Um, Nadia is an incredible woman. She's a lawyer. She's a project manager at the Human Rights Centre Zimina in Kiev and she joined me today to talk about life in the house five hours outside her own home in Kiev. It's in a very rural area because she had to abandon the capital shortly after the invasion by Russia began. So she's there with her parents and extended family and friends and we're we're just so grateful that she was able to speak to us. I think you're going to find this interview illuminating and as we all did here on the team, deeply moving. Um you know, she's there under siege, as so many Ukrainians are. And I know that you are all deeply interested and concerned about the situation there. So I began by asking Nadia Dobryanska about that day uh, last Thursday when she woke up and realised she was going to have to figure out a way to escape the capital. I actually was awake when the declaration of war came in, I woke up, but I, I had been struggling with sleep for the previous few days because of all the stress and the news. So I was up from half two and was scrolling Twitter and until five o'clock, 5 a.m. when I saw that people started tweeting that Putin declared war. I went to read his statement and in a few minutes afterwards, I just got up and started packing and calling my family that this is war. We've The war has been declared. And... Quite soon after that, I heard two explosions, massive explosions in my vicinity. I lived in town, so I'm not sure where exactly they were. Um, so I, I didn't even realize. I, was, I wasn't sure what that was, but it sounded like, right, war has been declared, so we should run. And I, yeah, I packed the essential stuff and walked down to my parents because they lived down the road, thank God. And my brother wouldn't pick up the phone he it was on on uh, on silent so i took the metro and picked him up and was giving out heart to him that he didn't keep his phone on these days as he as i asked him to keep it on vibration at least so yeah he packed his things and we can we came back home and started shouting at our parents who were who didn't want to leave they were in complete disbelief and yeah so we 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 left Kiev eventually around 10 a.m. We started. We started. We hit the road, so we took. I think it took us maybe five hours or so to reach the countryside where we decided that we were going to stay with my brother's friends, and we spent the night there. We had a plan because all with all the warnings, and I am very conscious and paranoid person. Like I definitely didn't want to die. So for the scaremongering of the war. I, I dragged my brother to a pub and we just drank and discussed, right? So if there are missile strikes on Kiev, what do we do? What do we do if there's mobile networks are down or if there's no no lighting or anything? So I just acted according to the plan and I didn't give us any time to doubt because it was very clear cut to me that, right, there is evidence from intelligence from the US, from the UK and from the EU that, right, Kiev is going to be targeted. So just acted upon it. And I know you can't tell us exactly where you are because you need to be kind of anonymous in that way. But tell us about your situation there where you are, because, you know, I'm seeing it's quite a dark room and the windows are shuttered because, of course, even though you're in the countryside in Ukraine, you're still 
worried about what is going to happen? Uh, yes. So I'm in a country house with my family, with my extended family, and we're quite remote from Kiev, but it's still uh, not very far away, from, like not in central Ukraine anyway. So, um, yeah, so the, my room is dark because the windows are uh, glued with sticky tape on the inside. So if there is an explosion, of, if there is a bomb or a rocket landing into the house that the splinters from the... Uh, glass don't kill us because they're ones inflicting most deadly uh, wounds to people unless they're buried under wrecks. And on the other side, on, on the outside, it's covered with very thick cloth just also to give additional protection from potential bombing. And my mother tied up the cloth on the outside so there is more light, just a wee bit of light. So here, so you can see me. So yeah. we we have a basement here and we were in hiding uh, over the weekend because there was apparently there was a, a battle in the sky between two Russian jets and Ukrainian jets. And we weren't sure at the moment what was going on, but the signs in the sky were horrendous. So, um, yeah, so making use of the facilities we've got. And how is morale and the spirits in, in your house Um You've got your parents there who I presume are, you know, older. I don't know what age they are, but uh, and then your extended family. What, what, what's the mood like? Ready to resist, I suppose. No, we're just carrying on, to be honest, on, daily, on a day-to-day basis. There's, I know that my mother seems very depressed and she's really... Like she, my parents are not quite ill. My dad has got onset dementia. It looks like it is. It's, it's just not. We did medical exams, but it, the dementia is not there. But he's exhibiting signs of dementia, so he is not quite well, and uh, he can't really embrace this uh, how serious it is. And my mother is also has her own issues so she's behaving like a toddler she's trying to resist all the commands and i'm i'm there shouting at her and saying you do, do you want to die or what uh, so it's it's quite hard but we're carrying on fine with the extended family and they were so generous to let us in and accommodate for us and to some extent it's it's really uh, it's so strange to be like i am enjoying the company if you know what i mean it's nice to be around my family this way. And it's unbelievable that we are sheltering together because there is a war. And I presume, obviously, you're keeping in touch with family or friends that have stayed in the capital. So how are they now? And have any of them joined the resistance or what's the situation there for, for the people that you're close to? So I can't discuss those who have joined the resistance, but I know um, most of my uh, hum- human rights organizations, workers have left Kiev. A few of them are still in and one is uh, is a nurse. She's training. Um, she's, she has medical training, so she's, she's gave, basically gave up on human rights work and she's just out there helping people. And uh, other people, a few of them are also helping out in different ways. And the majority have left. And to be honest, I'm not really in touch with other people because I don't have the card. My psychotherapist called me a few days to check in and to ask if I could help with some supplies for territorial defense. And I said, well, I'll ask around. And she's still there. And I honestly, I, I was begging her to leave but she's one of those people who says well my area is not bombed so I can stay and I'm like Jesus Christ like it's not bombed today but just look at Russian shelling Mariupol and Kharkiv there 
I have family in Kharkiv still with little children and they're just still there. I can't believe this. Like I was paranoid about Russian invasion in 2014 when Russians took control of Kramatorsk and Slavyansk uh, at first in the, uh, uh, in spring. And my mo- my grandfather, uh, grandmother and all my father's family were in, living in Donetsk and I was there uh, saying they're going to take over Donetsk. There's going to be a war out there. Just take the grandmother out out of that spot and my cousins and my aunts and and eventually would you believe it they spent half a year under the bombs it's just it's really hard for people to understand that this is real and i don't know why i am so clear cut about it but it's really really hard and some some people are just like me just acting like basically as civilian soldiers but many are not they're collapsing I mean, maybe it's to do, Nadia, with the fact that your work is in human rights anyway, and maybe you're just closer to it. And that's why you're kind of immediately, as you mentioned, paranoid and worried and making plans. Tell us about your work um, what the work you used to do in Kiev, because you were working with people who were being abused in Russian occupied places. So you're already very much in touch with the potential of what might happen if Russia are successful in what they're trying to do. That's true. Maybe this my line of work prepared me to for this. So I used to be project manager at Human Rights Centre's Mina. I, I suppose for now I'm working more of a reporter for on behalf of my centre and on behalf of myself, just taking the calls from journalists. And two projects of mine were concerning the sanctions for human rights violations by Russian forces and their proxies in Ukraine, in the occupied Crimea and uh, eastern Ukraine. And yeah, we were meant to launch a big subgrant work on documenting human rights violations and filing new sanction designation applications to the EU and the US and the UK, like the strongest sanctioned regimes that we identified. And the other one was working um, to promote the, promote the cause of uh, political prisoners uh, held by Russia, who, well, most of them were, um, well, we were focusing on citizen journalists and also professional journalists who were imprisoned and um, prosecuted and tortured by Russia. I was in touch with their families and were campaigning for Ukrainian writers to become voices of a certain number of prisoners. And yeah, we were doing quite well. And yeah, that's where we ended up. So my, I'm literally off a call with Marie Lawler, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights de- Defenders. I was before our uh, before our meeting. So we we are trying to identify the needs that we now how how do we need, how do we regroup and start our work as human rights organization during the war time yeah um now i have to say because people have noticed already and i think you mentioned the wee cloth that your mother had put up on the window they'll have noticed you've got a slight northern irish accent and they'll probably be wondering what is a woman from ukraine doing with that accent tell us about your irish links because it's fascinating and actually before you do that give us a bit of irish I think you have better Irish than a lot of us and a lot of people listening. So you went to Belfast to study Irish studies in 2019. I did. I did. Yeah, I think in 2018, I had a massive professional burnout as a human rights worker and policy advisor. And I decided just to do what I've, I guess, always dreamed of, but I never had the courage. Like, what am I supposed to do with the master's in Irish studies in Ukraine? 
But I just, I, I took <laughs> up Irish and Duolingo and I just decided, right, well, I'm just going to, I applied for achieving scholarships that is in the UK. I just couldn't identify any scholarships that were available in, in the south of Ireland. I mean, uh, so I just applied for it and I, yeah, I won it and went to Belfast and did my master's there and I was focusing on Irish history and politics. So I was researching the troubles, uh, uh, northern troubles during partition, the, the the so-called pogrom and uh yeah so i believe riverdance has something to do with your interest in ireland we can blame riverdance for a lot and and you saw that and were inspired is that right well it's 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 yes i think i saw riverdance a, a little bit later but uh the story goes that there i was doing a english language courses with different native speakers that were available at the time when i was a, was a kid and one of them in my teens was from the north of england and he was quite keen on the pogues and and Dubliners and yeah yeah so he just I started listening to the music and eventually I got bumped into Dubliners and Altan and Clan and I was take, completely taken I was like right I need to sing that but at that time there was no way you could learn Irish with internet resources it was like mid 2000s well in Ukraine and I was a kid so I couldn't really afford buying any any fancy textbooks so I tried I failed I did dance Irish I did they said that I had Irish legs. It's just, I don't know, it's not an Irish thing, but apparently it, it was Irish legs compared to the ballet dancers who have different styles. So anyway, so yeah, that's the story. So I, I guess I picked up the accent while I was working and living in Belfast. I think you did. And I mean, it's it's so interesting. You, you took Irish lessons on the Falls Road and you really seem to have got very immersed and clearly made a lot of contacts there and become kind of very interested in Irish history, too. And the, the links or the similarities or resonances between Ireland and Ukraine. Well, the truth is that I did two terms uh, in uh, on the, in cultural on the Academiach on, on the Falls Road, but I've been working with the tutor for two years now, almost. So it's there's much more. Like, I've been working a lot to get to this level of fluency in Irish. Yeah, a lot of work has gone into it, and you have lots of friends there now and people who care about you. I presume. I do. I do. I, if if I could go to every every friend who invited me to stay with them now that the war broke out, I would have no time. I would be moving from one house to another, maybe for for a week or two. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Now, nearly a million, speaking of people who've left, nearly a million people have left uh, Ukraine and had to go to other countries. And there's an estimated 2,000 Ukrainians that have, have died. That's just an estimate, we have to, to say. What are your feelings about the situation now? Um, I think the 
Russians have claimed to be taking over Kherson and there's various things that have happened overnight. Just with your reporter hat on, because that's what you've become. Tell us your assessment of the situation. I think that Russians will be escalating the shellings and the bombings of civilians in the cities, trying to crush Ukrainian resistance. And there is no military point in that. It's it's about spreading terror. It looks very much like Russian strategy in Syria and uh, Chechnya during uh, in the during the 1990s. So I think that that's that's the reason why they are trying that they're just literally shelling uh, residential quarters in Kharkiv and destroyed Okhtyrka overnight. There's hardly anyone. I don't know if there's any any other buildings actually standing. And they're deploying cluster bombs and um, other forbidden types of weapons. And it's it's just terrifying. Like human rights organizations have started documenting violations of international humanitarian law uh, by Russians, and including my organization. So, and the great news is that the International Criminal Court uh, will look into. Russian case. So yesterday it was announced that by the prosecutor that they will start the investigation. So that's amazing. And yeah, in terms of military advance of Russia, as, as far as I'm concerned, their their uh, positions in the south are growing stronger, like as in they took over Kherson, although I've seen reports that they're still fighting that it hasn't been abandoned. It's go, it goes back and forth. I think we've got news that it was uh, surrendered to Russians since yes, a few times. So just watching was how things are changing. Well, the, of course, the most terrifying is the, the fact that they keep using uh, long-range ballistic missiles to target different objects, including hospitals. And last night uh, there was a bomb. So a, a, a missile was... Uh, blown up by the Ukrainian anti-missile defense, thank God, over or around the, uh, in the area of the cave rail, railway station. So basically people who were trying to flee, trying to evacuate was, were targeted. So uh, it's really hard to tell that at times the Russians are definitely targeting military objectives. But civilians also get targeted. Like there is no excuse that that they were aiming, but uh, more precisely than, than that. And their uh, Russians have been trying to spread deep fake video that Zelensky declared surrender, and uh, Ukrainian news are discussing this. How do literally before a call, uh, there was on, it was on air that how do you tell if this is a deep fake video or not? Uh, <laughs> And, well, I suppose there's no way. It's very hard to tell as long as you're out of touch of with the official government. So there's a lot going on and it's the situation is really terrifying. Yeah. And, yeah. You mentioned Zelensky there. I, my co-host on the podcast wrote an excellent piece yesterday. I don't know if you got to see it about um, about him. And she wrote in it in a time when toxic strong men with fragile egos such as Putin, Trump and Bolsonaro are trying to star in their own Rambo epic. Zelensky, with his slight build and hangdog demeanour, represents a pillar of quiet composure and resolve, an unassuming brother figure facing down death in a brown fleece. Um, I just wondered, I suppose, your reaction to that and to kind of Zelensky's um, incredible, it seems, response to such a terrifying, difficult situation. Yeah, I think the description is really spot on. That... Um 
I personally was was quite critical of him before the war for because he was, yeah, what he was doing was quite the opposite of what he's doing now. So it's really impressive that all of a sudden he is sending these very strong messages of unity and resilience to Ukrainians. And the other thing is that he he's not a hawk, if you know what I mean. The, if we had a hawkish president back then, I'm not sure if Putin would have been provoked sooner. But the way that Zelensky has been keeping it pretty uh, low-key uh, in terms of the rhetoric, he kind of gave Putin the space to show the, the re their real intentions. After Zelensky's speech at Munich conference, Russian uh, Putin statements came in that were roaring of this uh, just, just mad uh, demands from Ukraine, which the... Previously, Ukrainians would have known like, for centuries that that's what Russians think, that we're not a nation, that we are just little Russians and we don't, have, we don't deserve to have our own state and identity. And then Putin that said that, uh, I'd, I lied to the whole world and um, everybody, you know, uh, the English-speaking world could read this. And this was so strong. And if it hadn't been, you know, that the patience of Zelensky to not to do anything stupid. As in, uh, for example, Russians are shelling civilians at the moment, and it's very hard for our military not to respond with equal um, brutality. Well, apart from normal brutality as in giving, you know, <laughs> firing back. But I think that the scale that Russians have been trying to provoke Ukrainian army and Zelensky in, into doing something stupid it didn't succeed. So Zelensky is really, yeah, he's going to go down into history and not just Ukraine, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's all the more astonishing considering he was a comic. He's a brilliant dancer. He won the equivalent of Ukraine's Dancing with the Stars. He's got so many strings to his bow and then he comes into this situation and he seems to be excelling in whatever way that can be judged, but excelling in that as well. And I mean, I saw that speech where he's, he appealed directly to Russians. I found it so moving and I'm really interested. He was basically trying to talk directly to Russians and say, we are not your enemy and don't believe what you're hearing because obviously the media in Russia is so controlled. Um, tell us a bit more about the. It's been fascinating watching the Russians come in and some of the really beautiful responses from Ukrainians to the people who are trying to invade. I saw one video today of a Russian soldier being allowed to call his mum on a phone and him crying as he's fed a, a sandwich by the Ukrainian people. So there's that kind of responses going on too. So there's so many connections between the Russians and the Ukraine. Yeah, this people. is all very complicated. So one dimension is that indeed very many Russians have Ukrainian grandmothers, Ukrainian wives, Ukrainian husbands and they have been on vacations in Odessa or in the Crimea before the occupation. So there's lots of connections, especially among people of the, who have lived in the Soviet Union. I was like three when it collapsed, so I don't have this strong identity connection like uh, that, that all older people do have. So, so there's this this dimension that we are this. To some people, it's a brotherly war. To some, I don't share that sentiment, but. I know that for many people, this is just unthinkable that Russians are targeting Ukraine in such a cruel war. The other thing is that Russia is indeed hiding the scale of damages and uh, hiding the fact that there is a war. 
and there there is going to be a huge crack crackdown on uh, the journalists and on people who are saying calling the war the war from today or the coming days that's what's being expected and if they introduce martial law it's going to be even more gruesome towards their own population so the strategy of Zelensky is to say you know to say to the Russians there is a war and you have to be aware of that and we don't want this war to use want it and uh, so and speaking about prisoners of war this initiative uh, to turn the prisoners of war to Russian to the Russian families who have lost them. And there's been a hotline set up for family members so that they can talk to their their uh, loved ones who have been, came to Ukraine and surrendered or been taken as, as prisoners. So um, it's, it's, one, it's, it's not just kindness, if you know what I mean. It's the, this is what Ukraine, it's the duty of Ukraine in terms of international humanitarian law to exhibit uh, this respect for um, for pr- uh, prisoners of war, and Russia doesn't want them. They don't. They're not taking their the bodies of the dead back. And Ukraine urged the International Red Cross uh, Committee to take them in because we there are way too many of them. I mean, the figures that we've been hearing from the Ukrainian government recently, even today, is like at least eight thousand bodies. And maybe those figures are not precisely accurate at the moment. They will be verified, but still these are enormous figures and the Russian families don't know that their loved ones are dead. And this is such a horrendous strategy. When the war was was beginning, I was thinking Russia will be flooded with coffins. But it's not because the Russians are not taking in their dead. It's unbelievable. I was, it's how, what kind of war is that? It's... Yeah, it's yeah, I'm, it's I'm lost for words in this respect. So there's mm-hmm. also this dimension of uh, respect for the prisoners of war, as according to the laws of war. But on the other hand, I've seen the statement by the armed forces of Ukraine as of this morning, or it was it during the night, that the infantry are not quite welcome to surrender, if you know what I mean, because of their brutal shelling. So I don't think that this means that Ukraine will disrespect international humanitarian law, but they will not be welcomed as mm. some uh, conscripts who... like the, Russia has sent many young lads who have no experience. They're just conscripts and they're thrown as cannon meat into Ukraine and just killed. So the sympathy for them as a cup of tea and a sandwich and we call to their mom is also part of this sympathy that they did... Well, according to them, they didn't know what they're facing. But professional military who are targeting civilians, they're very well aware of what they're doing. And they I don't think that they will get the same treatment. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that assessment. It really puts it all in context, actually, Nadia. Thanks. You've made it very, very clear. Another moment that will go down in history in terms of Ukraine resistance is the, the men on Snake Island who told the Russian warship to go fuck themselves. I mean, we thought they were dead then because immediately, but actually it turns out they were taken prisoner. Have you got any insight into that um, moment, which was just an incredible thing to hear on social media? It was absolutely heartbreaking because uh, Snake Island is a rock and there was there was litigation in the International Court of Justice between Ukraine and Romania and the court ruled that, right, it's it's a rock, but we will divide the border So for the sake of uh, uh, oil extraction in certain way. So they were just they were just border guards. That's, they had no no way of defending themselves. And we were 
when we heard the story, it was, yeah, my, yeah, I, I'm, I'm already numb, but it was uh, really heartbreaking back then. And um, when I heard that the, the news broke that they maybe is still alive, it's really, it's the best news you could get in this situation. Because this, this phrase, like war, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, it becomes those, one of the slogans of this campaign. The other one is about the woman who approached Russian uh, soldiers and said, would you, would you put your, uh, the sunflower seeds in your pockets so then when you're dead, the flowers will bloom out of you? It's the, it's, these are two that I identify the most the strongest uh, stories that we are, uh, that we see. And I think that, and there was this phrase about the Russian warship, go fuck yourself. It's been all over social media and some businesses and one of the banks uh, put this on their website. And yeah, it's, it's, it's boosting morale as in, as in, you know, like wartime propaganda doing its work. Yeah, and actually, it seems Ukraine is very good at that. I saw a very, very moving video, which was appealing to Ukrainians just to support each other. And again, I know these things are maybe trivial in, in relation to everything else that's going on, but that sense of solidarity among Ukrainians and, and that's being actively encouraged by the government. It's, it's, it's again, it's very, very moving. Talking about the European response and the sanctions and all of what's going on to try and stop Putin, what's your assessment of those? Well, I think they came in quite late and so much could have been done back in 2014 when Russia took Crimea and occupied eastern Ukraine, certain districts in eastern Ukraine. So, and it was, at first I was so scared that we would be left on our own and as in Germany with their North, North Stream 2, when they were clinging to it, well into the since the invasion started i was really you know i was it was really scary the way that the embassies were evacuating their staff as in we as uh, the pictures of afghanistan being abandoned were before me all that all along so um when actually real sanctions were imposed, not sanctions on Putin or a few a bunch of oligarchs, but real comprehensive sanctions on a Russian financial system, that's when I realized that yeah, we're not alone. We're Europe will help us strangle Russia, because I do think that to a large extent, uh, states who have been buying Russian oil and gas were are enabled, were enabling Russia. Paying well, how did Russia buy all these tanks and jets? I'm sorry, I, I, I can, I might be sounding like desperate, but that's that's my assessment, and I'm really delighted to see that Europe is reversing their stance. Well, and I'm, and when I say Europe, I don't mean that Ukraine is not Europe. I should be saying European yes. Union. Of course, that goes without saying. I can, I can imagine that's your your very strong feeling. Um. Yeah, I mean, Europe has been doing things they've never done before, which they've sanctioned the, you know, sending arms and things, which is not something that they've done. Um, And then I just interested going back to Ireland because we've obviously waived visas. So people I spoke to a taxi driver yesterday who was very relieved. He'd he had a relation um, and a friend who 
had managed to land in Dublin airport. This woman who's never been on a plane before has managed to get out of, of Ukraine via via Poland and she's she's here now. Um, and there's lots of talk of people in Ireland hopefully taking in Ukrainians who do end up here. Um, and yet we're a neutral country, as you know, Nadia. So we aren't getting involved in, in the more sort of nuts and bolts of arms and all that kind of thing. So what do you think of, of the Irish response? Well, first of all, I do. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the way. And yeah, other Ukrainians who have Irish connection. I'm not the only one. So really appreciate the fact that the visas have been waived. I've been following the, the news that when Irish citizens were urged to leave Ukraine, along others by Ireland, they were saying we can't leave our citizens, our families alone because Irish legislation to bring family members is very strange, like really uh, so when I saw that this solution was was on the table, I was over the moon. And it's yeah, I, I'm I don't have enough words to say that it's really helpful. And on one hand, and as to Ireland's response in military terms, you know, it's not. I think that it's not up to me to judge. I know that Ireland, in terms of the of for, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, are and response in the UN Security Council, has been very strong and really in favour of Ukraine. So thanks for that. And the fact that Ireland is sending the non, non-lethal aid as well, that's a lot. I do think that neutrality is being interpreted in different ways, and you can see other neutral states sending in troops. But I know that there is this whole debate about what neutrality means to Ireland, and it's not it's not up to me to judge, I suppose. I, I'm really worried that we do need defence for our skies and I don't see that Ireland could help us with that because there is a big problem with that in Ireland as well. Because Ireland is reliant on NATO to, to for protection of their own sky. So um, it seems that um, politically, I feel our, uh, Ireland's support, and I'm getting so much support from people, well, from all over the island, I suppose. Well, you've been um, reporting on Radio Nagail Tukta, which is amazing. Something I definitely couldn't do. I wouldn't have the, the lingo to do that. But um, we're so glad you're on the women's podcast. So talking about women, it's International Women's Day on Tuesday. Um, talk to me about being a woman in Ukraine and um, sort of feminism in Ukraine. What What has that been like, the feminist movement there? I think our feminist mov- movement is quite a motley crew. It's there. Um, I probably wouldn't have been thinking of myself as a feminist until I actually thought and decided, considered it. Am I? Yeah. But I think a lot of us went through that. A lot of people, I mean, you're younger than me, but I think that's a conversation within themselves that many women have had over the years. That's true. Because unlike maybe Ireland and some Western European countries, Ukrainian women were granted right to vote in literally 1917 or year after that. So we didn't have to fight for that. Or and Ukrainian women have been uh, in the labor force since then. So we have, you know, um, we weren't urged to leave uh, to give up our jobs as as women had to in civil service in Ireland, for example, when they got married. So we haven't had this 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 problem. But I think that the core has been the same in across Europe and elsewhere. So maybe Ukrainian situation is that there is a woman and. She works and her family responsibilities are on top of that. And men, uh, as a rule of the thumb, wouldn't be supporting that previously. So 
but then, of course, we do have this in, in the human rights movement, very, very staunch, very extreme uh, feminists either who um, who have very outspoken, like I was discussing this quite recently with my colleagues, that one of the activists says, well, there can be no sexism towards men. It's only about women. And that was quite striking. I think it's way beyond feminism that as I see it, but then... This is the diversity of feminism in Ukraine too. We, before the war, we were discussing the march on the 8th of March, the hum, uh, and we were discussing with my colleagues at work, should we have a, our separate column for our organization in the march in Kiev? And I was thinking, Jesus Christ, well, there is apparently there is an imminent war coming in, and we're discussing this, and yeah, apparently we will have an online march on the 8th of March. An online march. That's interesting. I haven't seen that, but I'm sure it will work. Um, you have abortion in Ukraine as well, of course. Yes. Well, we. I, I won't lie. We we regularly have uh, or certain MPs who are flirting with the church, who are with uh, anti-abortion bills have been on the table since I've been a lawyer, like since mid two thousands. So it's not. We shouldn't be taking this for granted. But yes. Well, if this has been the policy of the Soviet Union, which is one of very few things that I think that was quite good. Yeah, but you, so you because you were under the Soviet Union, you had those um, laws, which yeah, at least one good thing. It's, it's good to talk about one good thing. Uh, you mentioned your psychotherapist earlier being on the phone, and I was just thinking, Nadia, um, at the toll this is taking on your mental health, on your family. Clearly, your your mom and dad are already, as you said, having their own issues. How are you, first of all, in terms of your mental health with all of this going on? I'm postponing this conversation with myself for later. It's been literally seven days and I'm so numb and so tired that I think that I, if I start reflecting on my mental health, I won't be able to do what I'm doing. So I know I've noticed that I started humming back like yesterday. I was humming some songs to myself in between the calls. So it seems that I'm coming to terms with the fact that there is this new normality and apparently I am settling into it. And certain uh, habits of clo- getting clothed, because I'm slipping all dressed, just in case if there is, because there is still winter in Ukraine. It's it's quite cold. It was it was snowing for the few days before, and so if we were to go into the basement because there is a bombing or there is a missile attack, we have to be dressed. So I'm slipping all dressed, and uh, this this different habits that I have to put up, put up with are yeah just finding my way around them. Yeah. Um, Nadia, if people are listening, and I know they will be thinking people are desperate to help, you know, in whatever way, from your perspective, what, what do you think is the best way? I've seen people talking about money to the Red Cross and to various agencies is a much better way than, you know, I've, we've been collecting here bandages and things like that. But in a way, you're wondering what's the very best thing to do for people. I think all everything helps. So if it's easier for some people to donate money to international organizations or Ukrainian initiatives or even send money to the Ukrainian army, we've raised 6 billion Ukrainian hryvnia, which is sort of 60 million euro over the, over a week. So whatever suits. I know that there was an initiative in West Belfast uh, to uh, gather um, humanitarian aid to Ukraine and they had to halt it in the, after a few days because they were overwhelmed. So many people were bringing in food and clothes. So 
I think uh, there are so many, like, as you said, there's around a million uh, Ukrainians as refugees somewhere in the European Union. So um, looking for links with volunteers out there and sending them, um, delivering this humanitarian aid to them will be a good thing because this is not being coordinated to the best of my knowledge and it's all very uh, chaotic and whatever the Red Cross and other organizations are doing inside the country is really hindered by the wartime. There's, there are cities where, like Mariupol under siege and Kharkiv where there is a desperate situation with food and drink, but there's no way to get in there. Mm. So helping those who you can identify and support in different ways, you know, even spreading the word helps. Nadia, we haven't talked about Putin much actually, but I'm kind of really interested in your characterization of this person. What is your take on him? My take? I think he's beyond the pale. He's lost. He's no way. He's just going crazy because the way that he's waging the war against Ukraine, no man in their sane mind will do that to their own people, to their own army. Like they're, they're sending conscripts into Ukraine as cannon meat. Not and not uh, uh, changing this policy now, and having, having seen that they're just being butchered. I've seen the tweet by Ukra- quoting a Ukrainian soldier who says, I feel like a butcher now. It's, it's just mad. This is not a war, this is just madness. So, wasting the resources of his own country on some um, war that is not even justified. In He didn't even make an effort to justify the war in his, the eyes of his own people. I mean, it's brutal to say this if I'm Ukrainian and I would, would want Ukraine, Russians to hate us that much that they won't start, start a war. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want a war. But basically, uh, according to the information sp- dis- uh, available to the Ukrainian authorities, Russian soldiers were dead on. They, they will be welcomed as liberators and Ukrainians will be giving flowers to them and kissing them and, you know, all these beautiful stories of Russian liberating um, from the Germany, from Germany, for example. But on on the contrary, they're met as as occupants. So I think that whatever he's doing is absolutely off limits of any sane mind. And I think that we all underestimated how much a man with a red button with nukes can do when all the power is in his hand. And he, given that he's a dictator in his own country, he can terrorize the whole world and in, in, um, instill terror in the whole world. So they're afraid, even to, some countries are afraid to help Ukraine because they will be next. And in despite of all that, all the support that we've got and uh, this very surreal application uh, from our government to be for membership in the EU. I, I'm a lawyer. I, do, I can't comment on that. I don't know. I just have no clue what's going on. But it's been so uh, exhilarating that basically po- all Eastern European and Northern European uh, countries uh, who are post-Soviet, they all are in favour. And it's not just them. I don't, I, I don't want to be mistaken, but I think that Ireland also made this statement. That, so it's, it's exhilarating. And I see that the world is realizing for once at last that Putin is dangerous. And Russia appeasing uh, the dictator will only encourage him. And there is no way of understanding. I don't know. There are lots of military experts thinking that, well, maybe this is still a, some kind of check 
game that Putin is playing. But from my perspective, where I sit, it's madness. Yeah, thank you again for that very, very clear assessment. Um, Just before we let you go, and, and I'm just so grateful for you talking to us all this time, particularly under the circumstances that you're all in. Uh, what What is your plan? I mean, it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a day by day thing. You wake up, you see the lay of the land. Just just tell us what your, you know, what your week and your week is looking like, what your day to day plans are, what you'll do as a family there in that house. Yeah, you're right. It's just taking it on a, on a day to day basis. And I'm well, I'm thankful for the work that I'm doing with uh, the media and that I'm I'm. Uh, I'm able to to provide comments, and there's also uh, Ukrainian this initiative from of Ukrainian NGOs who have created this big list of people who can comment in English. So different journalists from I was commenting to a woman uh, to journalists from Portugal today and to journalists from France yesterday and an Italian journalist the day before. So there's a lot of work going on. So I don't have the time to think about what I'm supposed to do next. But my baseline is that if Russia succeeds with occupation, I leave, whatever, regardless, because uh, I will be in danger um, as many other outsp- outspoken people. I mean, you know, every Ukrainian is a danger because we're not, we don't consider ourselves Russian. That's the, the ground point. And the other thing that I've started thinking since a few days ago that if Russians proceed with shelling of civilians across the country, I might not have to, well, we should, I, I don't want to wait until they come so close that I can't escape. So one is the occupation and the other one is just indiscriminate murder of civilians that can escalate. So if this happens, I will have to... Um, blackmail and terrify my parents into leaving. I don't know what I'm, what I'm supposed to do, how to get around the fact that they don't want to leave and they're too scared to leave Ukraine. But if should the indiscriminate murder of civilians uh, escalate, I will tr- I'll, yeah, I'll do all I can. Well, um, you know, it goes without saying we, w- we wish you all the best. You mentioned humming between calls, all those amazing calls you're doing. Um, is there anything else that's giving you solace? Uh, is, I is there anything else that is allowing you to have moments of peace or relaxation or is it just constantly on your nerves and on edge? Yeah, it is for now. It's constantly on the nerves. And um, the nice things could be like some some very, some very good news from the front line. Oh, Ukrainian, Ukrainians have burnt a column of Russian tanks. Oh, that's fantastic. And that kind of thing. So I have still have my Sam Murray flute with me and... I'm thinking that one day I will start playing it, and but we have there is a wee baby of three months uh, where I where I am, so I I think that I might go to the basement and play it so I don't disturb the wee one, and yeah, well, Irish Strad is the international language, and I'll I hope I'm looking forward to the po- point where I can play it and just forget about things, but for now I'm all all over the news. Because we didn't mention O'Brien's and the trad sessions that you're involved in. Is that in Kiev, uh, the, the O'Brien's? or? Yes, it's uh, the before the, uh, there was an Irish consulate opened in Ukraine. No, not Irish embassy, sorry. Uh, we were joking that this is an Irish embassy. <laughs> it's, a, it's in town and it's a big uh, Irish trad pub. And yeah, we set, up with, uh, set it up with Mikey O'Shea, the fiddler from Cork, who's teaching who was teaching um 
uh, in, in primary school for English speakers. And while well, he was evacuated uh, quite early on uh, from Ukraine for by his job, but we did have a few sessions all together. And uh, with our Ukrainian members, we were meeting up wait, up until the last Thursday. I mean, just in case it's not clear, your work in human rights obviously uh, makes you more of a target. Like you say, everybody's in danger. Everyone who doesn't believe they're Russian has a mark on them. But particularly because you've been working in that area, it, you you would be even more concerned about that. But I really hope, Nadia, that uh, soon you do go down to the basement and play your flute and that that might give you some solace because with everything that's going on. And I hope as well, this is your debut on the women's podcast but I hope you'll come back to us and, and talk to us more I know you've, you're in demand all over the world and obviously you can only take things day to day but we just want to say that all our hearts are with you and we're all thinking about you um, in Ukraine and you know if there's anything you need or anything we can do that I hope you can let us know Um, the world is definitely watching and like you say they're finally realising what we need to do and all that all of that so um, yeah Thank you very much. Yeah, I really appreciate your support. And I'm getting so I personally get so, so, so much support from my friends in Ireland and from people who I barely know who have met accidentally in Belfast asking for directions when I was just a student. And the person actually contacted me two days ago. We exchanged numbers just in case. And he asked how I was. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I've been thinking of you, honest to God. (laughs) So, yeah, and I'm sure that Ukrainian people are feeling the support from the whole world these days and it's really chuffing and yes and be sure if there's anything I need you will know thank you very much do let us know and listen love to everybody in your house and you know that's such a difficult situation with your parents on top of everything else but you seem like an incredibly resilient person so far but also that self-care is going to be usually important too so I hope that's something that you can start to think about as well um, as the days go on but thank you very much Nadia Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for. I I found it absolutely amazing talking to Nadia. And I, I, again, I'm so grateful to her for coming on. And we will have her back on as well. And hopefully she'll be able to update us with some, some better news. But at the moment, it just does seem pretty bleak. So thank you very much to Nadia Dobrianska. She's an incredible woman. That's it from me. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at our Women's Day event on Tuesday and do get involved you can send us your stories of change to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com until then the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 